Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Ever since the post-war years, both fear and complexity have increased. Fear of the bomb, of communist war, political assassination, 9-11, technology, growth and concentration of business, and the increase in the size and power of government. All events and ideas that have made it almost impossible to get one's head around the totality of change. Much of our division today, it can be argued, is about how we have navigated those fears and traumas. What has emerged, it seems, is two central narratives that have their origins early in the mid-20th century and are still evolving and mutating today. One that the blame lies with the military-industrial complex, with shadowy generals and CIA agents and covert operatives. It's the world of General Jack Ripper and the Manchurian Candidate. On the other side, the blame goes to governments, to faceless, nameless bureaucrats, educated elites who think they know better than what Nixon called the silent majority, the group that Reagan wanted to shrink to be small enough to go down a bathtub drain. This became known as the deep state, popularized in culture by Seven Days in May, JFK, and Star Chamber. The battle between those two worldviews one on the left today, one on the right, seems to provide much of the fuel for our partisanship. The funny thing is that sometimes they do come together. How we got here, what the deep state really is, or even if it exists, is the core of a new work by my guest, two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, David Rode. David Rode is the executive editor of the New Yorker website, a former Reuters, New York Times, and Christian Science Monitor reporter, the winner of two Pulitzer Prizes, and it is my pleasure to welcome David Rode back to this program to talk about his newest work, In Deep, the FBI, the CIA, and the truth about America's deep state. David, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show. It's great to have you here. It seems that, as you talk about it, that there are really kind of two phases of this whole idea of the deep state. There's kind of the way it evolved up until the mid-70s, 76, 77, where you really begin this book with the Church Commission, and then what happened after that? Talk a little bit about that idea. So the Church Commission, which many, I it depends on people's age, but some, some remember and some don't, you know, was a, an amazing work by a congressional committee that uncovered decades of abuses by the CIA and the FBI. Um, some of it was known, but the sort of extent of it was, was amazing and shocking to people. Uh, more than half a million Americans who were engaged in constitutionally protected political activities were investigated by the FBI, you know, without court orders. Um, the FBI infiltrated the groups and tried to steal information and then release it to discredit them. And it ranged from, you know, groups on the right, such as the John Birch Society, um, to on the left, um, Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement. Um, and then there was a whole raft of reforms that was created to try to you know, curtail the CIA and the FBI from engaging in these kinds of activities. And then talk a little bit about what the reaction of the country was as this became revealed during the Church Commission hearings. I, I think there was, you know, this. it sort of shattered this myth, and we keep getting it shattered over and over <laughs> again, of sort of a, American exceptionalism, that, you know, that we thought the rule of law would prevail, and, um, you know, it wasn't true. I, one of the people I interviewed was a, um, a guy named Fred Schwartz. He was one of the main investigators on the church committee, and it was actually talking to him. Um, Fred Schwartz's middle initials are A and O, so his name is F-A-O Schwartz. Uh, I believe he's the third or the fourth, so he is a member of the famous wealthy New York family that had the famous 
toy store. And as he was interviewing CIA and FBI officials, he thought as he was a blue blood sort of Harvard-educated wasp that he would identify more with CIA officials who at that point were very much Ivy Leaguers. Um, and he said he found it blood-chilling talking to these CIA officials because they were so effective at lying. He really had no consistent ability to know when they were telling him falsehoods. And he was actually, um, he liked the FBI agents better, but, but they represented a different problem. The FBI agents said they genuinely feared for the future of the country. They thought communism was infiltrating our culture and, and our way of life. And they felt that, like, current laws weren't adequate enough. And so to defend the country, they kind of had to take things in their, old, in their own hands and do these black uh, bag jobs, they called them, where they would go in and wiretap people's phones without any orders from, from judges. So a theme is this kind of fear and ideology driving us to take extreme uh, measures. How much of this came out of the trauma also of the 60s, the Kennedy assassination, the assassinations of, of, of Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King, and all the other trauma that came out of Vietnam and the civil rights era? To what extent did that play a role in creating the environment for this? One of the main, another main character in the book is James Clapper. He was the director of national intelligence um, under Obama. He's now criticized by a lot of President Trump supporters. His father was a, an official at the National Security Agency, which does all of our eavesdropping. Clapper, um, you know, joined the military, the Air Force, and then worked in the NSA. And he talked about watching cities burn in the late 60s. And one of the things the Church Committee found was that the National Security Agency was conducting eavesdropping illegally in the United States. And Clapper, you know, he, he likes oversight. We can talk about this later. He, he claims the intelligence community now, now accepts it by judges, by members of Congress. There should be oversight. But at the time, he feared for the country's future. And he, you know, said that the NSA was, you know, the actions were improper, but again, it was motivated by this, this, this sense that the country was, was falling apart. And were foreign governments funding Vietnam War protesters? Were foreign governments sort of funding different extremist groups? That wasn't true. These were our own problems, but it was interesting to talk to him about how people thought of this eavesdropping. Talk a little bit about the reforms that came out of all the revelations from the Church Commission and what was put in place and how effective it was. So it was a, a raft of reforms. Um, President Ford started them and President Car Carter finished them. Um, in terms of improper surveillance, a new federal court was created. It was called the FISA court, where a judge had to approve an FBI uh, request to perform uh, surveillance. Um, a 10-year term was put on how long an FBI director could serve. J. Edgar Hoover had served for over, you know, 40 years and blackmailed politicians with information he had. Um, Jimmy Carter signed a law, uh, the creations of, of special prosecutors who could investigate abuses by presidents or members of the executive branch. Inspectors general uh, were created. They were to more look for waste and fraud, but again, they were sort of an independent agency. And then in Congress, you had new intelligence committees in the House and the Senate that were to be all over, theoretically, the CIA and the NSA. And all of this, you know, is, it's sort of a post-Watergate, post-church reform idea of how can the different branches of government 
prevent abuses by presidents and abuses by the FBI and the CIA. And yet less than 10 years later, Iran-Contra happened. Yeah, and that's an example of, um, you know, the White House working with the CIA um, to defy another reform. And, and one thing, and this is law now, was that, uh, again, pre-church reforms, when the CIA conducted a covert operation, often the CIA director would just talk about it verbally with the president. Um, Ford, and, Ford and Carter said, no, there had to be signed covert action uh, orders that um, mandated these, these covert programs, and then copies of those signed documents were given to the senior members of Congress from both parties, the senior members of both intelligence committees, and that did not happen in Iran-Contra. The Reagan administration uh, sold weapons to Iran and used the proceeds to try to fund the, con- the Contras in Central America. Again, depending on the age of the listener, they'll know all this. But that, and it was an interesting moment because most, you know, it was a, had, there was a debate and there were some conservatives who felt that um, the president should be able to do whatever the president wanted with the CIA and that this this kind of oversight by Congress of the CIA was infringing on the president's power to protect the country. Um, that debate sort of in- erupted after Iran-Contra, but in the end, congressional oversight won. Uh, a young member of Congress at that point named Dick Cheney uh, served on the Iran-Contra uh, congressional committee that investigated all this. Cheney said what the CIA and Oliver North did was fine, um, but most Republicans sided with Democrats and saying, no, it was not fine. It was illegal. Congress should have been notified and should be notified. So the system stands um, after Iran-Contra. And and part of the group of of Republicans that felt that it was fine was not only Dick Cheney, but also people like Don Rumsfeld and Bill Barr and uh, Anthony Scalia before he was on the Supreme Court. Yeah, there was a belief that, uh, and Bill Barr, you know, as our current attorney general, uh, articulated this in a speech he gave to the Federal Society last fall. And Barr argues, and I think he sincerely believes, he's believed in his whole career, that the most important branch of government in terms of safeguarding the country is the presidency. And he argued that if you look at American history at moments of crisis, of uh, natural disaster, you know, or war, or economic uh, crisis, um, it's the presidency that saved the country. And we need a strong presidency to, to continue to hold the country together. Um, Congress is slow and deliberative. The judiciary has no, you know, executive sort of personnel to carry out things. And Barr argued that over the decades since Watergate, um, encroachment by the judiciary, um, a judge in California, you know, um, temporarily blocking Trump's um, travel ban. You know, he said it was an improper infringement on presidential power. Um, And then he has backed Trump in arguing that Congress does not have access to to White House records or even White House witnesses, um, such as Don McGahn, in terms of um, the impeachment or or the Mueller investigation. And, And this is an amazing moment, an argument, you know, liberals argue that this is crazy what Bill Barr is talking about and that Bill Barr and Donald Trump are sort of shifting the traditional balance of three co-equal branches of government and elevating the presidency and, and giving it an amount of power that's that, that's going to be dangerous. What impact did 9-11 have on all of this? Um, there's a shift. Um, instead of fearing, you know, a rogue president has sort of lingered for 
many years after Watergate and Nixon, there was sweeping public support for President George W. Bush and the FBI and the CIA and the NSA to protect the country. Um, my sense is that, you know, the power that was lost um, after Watergate by the presidency is regained after 9-11. And if anything, George Bush goes beyond it. He um, carries out a, uh, a warrantless mass surveillance program. Many people may have heard that term. That's, again, based on um, Bush did not bother going to this FISA court and asking for warrants. It was that was you know still the law, and you know privately, um, Bush got opinions from his Justice Department, um, John Yoo, saying he didn't need to get the permission of that court. He, as president, can surveil in an emergency whoever he feels is needed. And then, you know, the CIA engaged in the rendition and torture programs that again partisan divide, but many people felt the. This kind of act, these kind of actions going on in secret was wrong. Democrats said they weren't fully briefed on them in Congress. Um, Bush officials said they did. So a vast increase in executive power after 9-11. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about how this idea, this notion of a deep state emerged as, as it relates to so many of these events we've talked about, and particularly your conversation with Peter Dale Scott, who really evolved this idea in light of some of the things that we're talking about? Yeah, for decades, deep, the, sorry, the term deep state was really used actually regarding the Turkish military. Uh, there was a sense that the military in Turkey was blocking the emergence of democracy there. And Peter Dale Scott, um, a, a University of California at Berkeley professor, wrote a book in 2007. Um, the title, I believe, was The Road to 9-11. And um you know, Professor Scott sort of took the kind of liberal critique in that he was worried about, you know, the military-industrial complex that he felt was drawing the country into war after war. He was also very suspicious of sort of Wall Street and, and corporations and big financial interests. Um, he ended up doing interviews on Alex Jones's Infowars show, and Jones, as people may have heard, is a much more right-wing um um, commentator who tends to delve into conspiracy theories. And Scott told me in this interview that he regretted that, that he felt that, you know, he the term deep state, as he presented in it, it was sort of twisted and vulgarized. Um, and then it sort of dies out until the, that's 2007 when his book comes out. It, it's sort of on the fringes until after the 2016 election. And, of course, it always comes up also with respect to the JFK assassination, it seems. It does. And I, um, I mean, you know, I, I'm, I, let me just say that, you know, that I'm a mainstream journalist, and, and so I know people <laughs> will, will question my credibility. You know, I, I talked to dozens of in, sort of intelligence officials and FBI officials for this book, and they, you know, they deny things like they, you know, they were part of assassinating, you know, President Kennedy. They, they argue they risked their lives to sort of try to preserve, you know, American democracy and American society and get very angry about that. And I had one, you know, former CIA official, again, when I was thinking about writing the book, he, he argued that, you know, a lot of bad things happened during the Cold War. Uh, members of the CIA sort of resented the oversight, you know, that began in the 70s. But they came to embrace it because there were sort of rules of the road. This is how you do it. This is how you, you have to brief these intelligence committees in Congress. And clearly they manage those committees. They don't tell them everything. But 
he argued to me and also in 2018 that the problem was the political class now and that the political class is sort of hyping certain intelligence that helps, you know, their own election chances or their party and downplaying certain intelligence or information that, you know, doesn't help their party. And he claimed, and I, many listeners will laugh, but, you know, this intelligence official said that, um, you know, that Americans should be, you know, as skeptical of their politicians and the politicians' motives, you know, as they are of intelligence officials. Part of the reason, though, it seems that the political class is able to get away with that is because the totality of all of this creates such fear, such confusion in the American public. It is, but I found, and again, people are welcome to dismiss my findings. Um, nine, you know, Iran-Contra and 9-11 were different because those were presidents carrying out programs without telling other branches of the government. Um, before then, before the church reforms, there was an issue of the CIA and FBI acting on their own without authority from the president. So the system has worked in that, you know, and again, I mean, unless you believe the JFK conspiracy theories, but that that these organizations are somewhat under the control of the president with oversight from Congress and limited oversight from the courts. And And the issue today is, how much power should the president have to order these organizations to do things? And then, most importantly, and the and the many people are arguing the Trump era, and even even you know people argue this about Obama. Are presidents now politicizing the CIA and FBI more so than they did in the past, and using you know and the Justice Department and using them to kind of bring cases against their enemies or, or pressuring them to produce the intelligence findings? that matches their their political goals and their, their political messaging. In that sense, it seems to be a, a kind of vicious cycle going on, the way in which the toxicity of our politics is impacting the quote-unquote administrative state and how it's reacting to that. Yes, and, and let, let's just look at coronavirus. Um, public health officials are, are part of the, the administrative state, I don't like the term deep state. I think it's political rhetoric. I like saying that the permanent government or the institutional government. Uh, if you like government, you use terms like good government. You know, if you don't like government, you know, you talk about uh, the, you know, the swamp or, or the deep state. All countries have permanent governments. You know, there's about two million Americans who work for different federal agencies. But just looking at this moment with the coronavirus, you know, do we? trust the public health experts or do we trust our elected leaders? You know, hopefully they agree and it's an easy decision for the public. But if we continue this cycle of win it all politics and of questioning uh, basic fact, there was just a poll that came out today by Axios and Ipsos. Um, more than 60% of Americans don't believe the death totals for coronavirus in this country. Um, and sadly, um, most Democrats um, think that the death toll is actually higher than is being released, and most Republicans think it is lower. So if we can't agree on just how many people have di are dying of coronavirus, we can't come up with sort of policies that can help us, you know, save each other. Mm -hmm. One of the things you point out is the, the odd situations where both sides in this debate come together 
talk a little bit about that? Because maybe there's something in that we can learn. I think there's a real opportunity in terms of surveillance and the digital age. Um, there's a funny alliance uh, in Congress now between uh, Senator Ron Wyden, the liberal um, from Oregon, and Senator Rand Paul, the conservative libertarian from Kentucky. Uh, both of them are deeply suspicious of, of government surveillance. And our growing partisanship, um, has, I think we're at least a decade behind properly, you know, creating consensus and creating laws around, you know, our data. You know, there's more of our private lives and secrets and, you know, and civil rights at risk in the digital age than I think there's ever been. It's so easy to, to scoop it up. And the other irony is that it's private companies that have more and more of our private data, but we have no sort of legal system for when, you know, how those companies can, or very, a very limited one in terms of how those companies can use that data. When can law enforcement break into an iPhone? And we're so polarized and so busy, you know, blaming the other side of extreme conspiracies that, that we can't agree on this. And then I, I would also say the coronavirus is an opportunity as well, that, you know, we need to have a public health service. You know, I think all officials make mistakes. Some government officials are bureaucrats. They fight for their budget. They fight for their turf. But um, I guess I'd urge people to be skeptical of government officials, um, but try not to be cynical about them. Talk about the way in which, in, in some respects, Trump is has been a reaction to all of this, but has also, I mean, as Steve Bannon laid out early on, set out to make the situation worse. I think the president uh, is exaggerating. I think that uh, there was actions by low-level officials um, who, when they wiretapped Carter Page, you know, uh, um, it was found, a review was done by an inspector general, and some, again, a position created by Jimmy Carter that found that the first two warrants to you know, surveil Carter Page. He was a former Trump campaign advisor at that point, were legal. The next two weren't. There was a change in a document. The reason Page was the focus of interest for the FBI was that he was meeting with Russian officials um, while advising Trump. Um, An FBI official changed an email that said Carter Page was cooperating with the CIA and talking to them about those meetings. And the email's meaning was changed to say, uh, he was not cooperating with the CIA. So Carter Page should not have been surveilled for that long. You know, that uh, low-level FBI official, you know, is being investigated, and that's good. High-level officials say they didn't know that. You know, I mean, anyway, to to come to the main point, there's a real problem with surveillance. There's a real problem with the FISA court. Trump Tower was never um, wiretapped. Uh, the best way the FBI could have derailed Trump's election chances was to leak that they investigated. They were investigating Trump and Russia. They didn't do that. Um, I met with John Brennan, the CIA director, and asked him about the Steele dossier. And you know, during the 2016 campaign, and I asked him about was there compromising videotapes the Russians had of Donald Trump. And Brennan, you know, was surprised. Said, "I'm not commenting either way. I'm not confirming what you're telling me. I'm not." denying it. He was sort of basically saying, I don't want any part of this, this story. And then he urged me during the 2016 election to not print crazy things about Donald Trump that I couldn't confirm and not print crazy things about Hillary Clinton that I couldn't confirm. So my experience was that there are problems that I found, again, with surveillance, but there are not coups 
being carried out against presidents in this country. I asked Trump administration officials, Obama, uh, George W. Bush administration officials, and they all said, yeah, we get frustrated with, with bureaucrats in Washington, and they leak stories, and they, again, try to increase their turf and budgets. But there is no evidence of politically motivated sort of conspiracies being carried out by career government officials, Donald Trump is exaggerating. And what is the consequence? I mean, this comes back to to the point you were making before about the disagreement about basic facts with respect to the coronavirus. What is the consequence of more and more people believing these ideas and and Trump continuing to exaggerate and, and half the country at least believing it? I, again, I'm I'm glad an election is coming up in November. I believe our systems are imperfect, but I think they generally work. That would include the press. Again, (laughs) listeners might disagree. I think most reporters try to get their facts straight. But I worry now, you know, we have a pandemic and, you know, a highly charged election this summer. Um, There's already kind of questions about vote counting and vote totals and vote fraud. So I I think it's critical that, um, you know, the results of the election not be questioned by, um, you know, either side and that we have an election. Um, That's our clearest kind of mandate in terms of the direction of the country. Um, And I think one one area Trump is right is that if, you know, a president or a senator or a member of the House, you know, they have a Democratic mandate when they're elected every two to four to six years. And that democratic mandate, you know, should be respected. Civil servants should carry out their orders, you know, unless they're illegal. But I, I do worry about the election, and I, and I, you know, we have an amazingly um, localized system. So anyone trying to, you know, massively rig the election would have a hard time doing it. So I'll use my same line again. I just in, on on November third, as the results come in, um, I would suggest that. For the sake of our democracy, readers might want to be skeptical about the results or these election officials that everybody meets when they vote in their schools, but but not cynical about them. Um, it's critical for our democracy. And the civil servants that are really at the core of this, that are the ones referred to as the deep state, how does it impact them and the work that they do? So uh, another um, main a character in the book is named Tom O'Connor. He's an FBI agent. And I kind of trace his career. He is a police officer in a small town in Massachusetts, um, joins the FBI, investigates the bombing of the USS Cole in Yemen, which is just before 9-11. His job is sort of evidence recovery, and he also recovers the bodies of the deceased. So he recovered the sailors' bodies from the coal. 9-11, he drives straight to the Pentagon after the, the planes hit, he um, then spends weeks there working with the FBI agents, and he and other um, members of his team collected more than 2,000 bags of human remains from the Pentagon. Um, he then went to Iraq and investigated the shooting by Blackwater private security guards of Iraqi civilians in a Baghdad traffic circle. Um, later in his career, he came back to the U.S. and investigated you know, racially motivated uh, violent extremists. Tom retired on 9-11 this year. He was really frustrated with Congress's failure to um, fund uh, programs that have started with first responders who've come down with cancer from the Pentagon and the World Trade Center. He was at this famous hearing people may have seen where John Stewart um, chastised everybody. 
And I said, Tom, well, what are you going to do um, when you retire? And I kind of, you know, and he, there was this kind of a broad frustration with the political class. Uh, I heard, as I mentioned earlier, and I said, well, Tom, would you ever consider running for office? You know, and he said, no, I want to do something that has meaning. And that's a very bad sign for our democracy that that's how alienated people are, are becoming. David Rode, the book is In Deep, the FBI, the CIA, and the truth about America's deep state. David, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you. Thank you.